I think I share a, a common fear with many pastors, not only in, in our culture, but probably around the world, that on any given Sunday, we're going to stand up and, and not really have anything significant to say. This idea that somehow or another people are going to walk out and say, got nothing. Got nothing to help me take a next step forward in my relationship with God. And that fear torments me on occasion, especially on Saturday nights as I try to sleep. And, and particularly so when we come to topics that should be, should be things that we've mastered already, things that we already know, things that are already very familiar to us. And as they're presented to us, we say, yeah, I know that. I already got that. So the kind of the been there, done that kind of thing. But there's very much about those things that we know that we really don't know yet in terms of living it out in our own lives. And it's in that spirit that we come to our text today. So I have some trepidation and say, yeah, you know, I got a lot of that stuff already. But somehow or another, the God can speak through our familiarity with these truths that we look at and speak into our lives in a way that really calls us to be different as we go forward. You know, we worked through a wonderful series out of the seven letters to the churches that are in the book of Revelation. And out of that, we started a new series called Revelations from Revelation. We've been looking at various themes. And, and I got asked out in the lobby after the first service, and said, well, when are we going to talk about Armageddon in the end times? And I said, we're getting there, you know. We're getting there, you know. And, uh, but we've we got to work through the major things. But you remember last week, for those of you who are here, we, we looked at the seven Beatitudes that are part of the book of Revelation. Yes, there are Beatitudes, just like in Matthew's, the, Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. There are Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. And their intent is that our foreknowledge of what God's going to do in the future changes our experience in the present. And with that, we experience blessedness. So that as we read the book of Revelation, as we read the Word of God, we understand what God's going to do in the future. It changes who we are in the present because we know what God's up to. And it was intended, the entire book of Revelation, to be a way of fortifying the Christians at the end of the first century who were experiencing tremendous persecution because of their faith, whose lives literally were hanging in the balance. This knowledge of what God was going to do was designed to change them in the present. It's designed to do the same thing today to us. But that knowledge of the future was conveyed to us by a messenger. And the scripture tells us in Revelation it came by Jesus and by the agents that he appointed. And part of what the book of Revelation tries to do is to give us confidence in the message because we can have confidence in the messenger in terms of who Jesus is. So today in our second installment of the series of Revelations from Revelation, I want to look at the question of who is Jesus? And so now you kind of understand my fear and trepidation. Well, we talk about Jesus all the time. What new stuff can we really get? Who is Jesus as we explore this text today? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation, would you? I think we're going to move through several different passages. We're going to kind of start in Revelation 1, and that'll be our, our anchor. But there's several places I'd love to take you as a part of explaining or bringing out what Revelation tries to communicate to us about who Jesus is. And let me start with just the first few verses. So we, we, get a, we get an appreciation for the fact that the book of Revelation, for us to really understand it, 
we need to understand what it teaches us about who Jesus is, because that's its intent, its purpose. It starts this way. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. He sent it and signified it through his angel to his slave John, who testified to God's word and to the testimony about Jesus and all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, you wouldn't think that the little word of could cause so much discussion among commentators. But in the Greek language, which I am not a master of, nor do I actually have a desire to be a master of, but I took it while I was in seminary, enough, just enough to be dangerous. This word of in, is built off of some Greek language that can be understood either as a, a genitive of source, which if you were to translate it differently, it says the revelation given by Jesus Christ. In other words, he is the source of the revelation. He's the means by which he's given. it's given. Or it could be an objective genitive, which means the revelation about Jesus Christ. But I think as you look at this in its fuller context of the first few verses, that the intent really is both of those. And there are examples in ancient Greek literature, that the word was used simultaneously to mean the exact same thing. So it really is, this is the revelation from Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ. See, it was given to Jesus to reveal to John, and a part of the revelation was a testimony about Christ. As we go to the book of Revelation, we need to understand that it's not just about predictions about the future. It's trying to tell us who is driving future. Who's in charge of the future? Who is Jesus? And so we come to this text today to look at the issue of who is Jesus. And I want to start with the foundational verses out of chapter 1. And again, if you're using your Bibles, you'll find this text out of the Pew Bible on page 1040. If you're using your own Bible, you're going to find our text at the, in the very last book of the New Testament. Let me start with verse 4. But I have particular interest in verses 5 through 7. It says, John says, To the seven churches in the province of Asia. And we've already seen those through our series out of chapters 2 and 3, that those were the churches of Ephesus and of, at Smyrna and at Pergamum and at Thyatira and at Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. It says, Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming. From the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. In other words, he shows us what's really true about God. He is the firstborn from the dead. In other words, it's speaking of his resurrection after his death on the cross. And he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And again, that gents a lot of, a lot of discussion as to whether or not he's already doing that and the millennium's already started or whether or not this is something that's going to happen in the future or is this understood in different ways, but Jesus is in charge. He's a ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, loves us enough to come and to leave heaven, to come into this world, to become one of us and to die on a cross in our place. And he has set us free from our sins by his blood. The redemption that we experience in Jesus Christ. And he's transformed us because he's made us a kingdom, priests to his God and his Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. It says, look, 
He's coming with the clouds. And when he's the one who's going to return. And everyone will see him, including those who pierced him. And all the families of the earth will mourn over him. This is certain. Amen. Now this, this passage lays out a, an incredible foundation for who Jesus is. But many of these themes are expanded upon as we work through the book of Revelation. And there's three things that I, I really want to highlight to you today about all of the different teachings about Christ, all the different roles that he plays, all the identity that he encompasses in his person. I want to break it down into three major things for you to look at today. And the very first of these really flows out of some terminology here in, in chapter 1 and also in, in chapter 2 and then later, you know, it, as it, things are referred to. It, you know, in, in chapter 2, in one of the letters to the churches, he says, says, it's from Jesus who is the Son of God. Chapter 2, verse 18. This imagery that says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like the bronze, says, I know your works. And he goes on from there. Here God, the Lord God, is referred to as the Alpha and Omega. But then again, as Jesus is identified and speaks about himself, he speaks about himself as the Alpha and the Omega. One of the claims, one of the truths, one of the revelations about Christ that's clear in the book of Revelation is that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, big whoopee, right? How many of you didn't think you knew that before you get here? But before you kind of dismiss it really quickly, let's explore a little bit more about what that means. Because in the words of Revelation, when it speaks about Jesus as the Son of God, it also means that Jesus Christ is going to be the victor. He's already won. There's no way that he can lose. He is the victor. Turn with me over, if you will, to, to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. Just lick your finger and flick those pages and get right over to verse 11 and I, and I, of chapter 19. And, and, and I want to read about six or seven verses here for you to, to kind of bring out the, the significance when the book of Revelation embraces Jesus as the Son of God and presents that as truth. Part of what it means is that He is going to be victorious. Just listen to this picture. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. The white horse is always the, the, the choice color of, victor of victory. Its rider is called Faithful and True a designation that's used of Jesus earlier in the book of Revelation. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are, were like a fiery flame, and on his head were many crowns. He, he had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure linen. From his mouth came a, a sharp sword so that he might strike the nations. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And throughout the book of Revelation, you'll see places where it's spoken as assumed, as already reality, that Jesus Christ has already won. He cannot lose because He is God's Son. He leads the armies of God in this cosmic battle between 
between good and evil, between righteousness and sin, between God and Satan, and he cannot lose. The battle is raging. It's not over yet. But Jesus Christ is going to win because he is the Son of God. And whether or not you're going to be on the winning team or the losing team all depends on whether or not you're on the Son of God's team. But beyond that, there's also this idea that Jesus is the eternal judge. And you see that here. He's, he's trampling out the, the, the winepress of the fierce anger of God. He's making war and executing eternal judgment. There's also this imagery that comes out throughout the book that Jesus is the King of kings and He is the, the Lord of lords. And, and, and he's in control. It's this idea that he's, he's the one who holds, in chapter 1, the keys of Hades and of heaven. He's the one who's able to determine where people go. He's the one who's pictured harvesting the nations with a sickle as he rides through the nations, judging the nations. As the Son of God, who will be victorious. He's the one who has the privilege, the responsibility, the absolute right to say that this is right in the eyes of God and this is not right in the eyes of God. This is guilt. This is innocence. This is unrighteousness and this is righteousness. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, what are the implications for us? I mean, see, this is where I think that which we know we really need to know. What are the implications for us today that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God who will be victorious and in that victory will execute judgment as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Just several different realities. One, what that means is that every single one of us, either in this lifetime or in the next lifetime, will acknowledge who Jesus really is. Absolutely. I mean, we can say, well, I'm not so sure about Jesus and the church, and man, you know, all, and you find these documents that seem to... You know. I'm telling you, the Scripture says, what God says to us is that whether we acknowledge Christ as Son of God in this lifetime or whether we do it in the next lifetime, every single one of us will come to a place where we will admit, we will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's just a matter of when. It's not a question of if. He is the Son of God. And if you want to be on the winning team for eternity, as opposed to the losing team, if I can use that terminology, you have to make up your mind about Christ now. Not in the lifetime to come. Because Jesus' team will be the winning team. But, but I, I think there's a, a very more practical question for us today. That, and and I, I'm, I'm hoping I can convey the senses to you about this implication for us. When we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, what that means is that Jesus issues orders, not suggestions. And, and, and we've developed this whole mindset that we, we read the Word of God, we listen to Jesus to see if there's something that we might want to follow. You, you know what I'm saying? And it's not that way. 
If Jesus is the Son of God, He is the Lord of Lords, He's the King of Kings, He's the one who's going to be victorious, He's the one who gets to execute judgment, He means He's the one who issues orders. You know, my brother's youngest son, sometime this weekend, climbed on a plane and headed to Afghanistan. It wasn't because somebody suggested he go. It's because somebody ordered him to go. They had heard reports that some of their advance teams that they had been sending out, that between landing at the airport, between the time they got off the plane and they got to their transportation, they were taking mortar fire before they even got, literally got settled into their transportation. He didn't go because it was a suggestion, whether or not it was a good idea. Somebody ordered him to go. When the Son of God says... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's not a suggestion. It's an order. When the Son of God says to you, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, it's not a suggestion. It's an order. When the Son of God, through the Word, says to us, pray at all times, it's not a suggestion. It's not a way to make your life better. It's an order. You know what I mean? When, when the Word of God says to you, you know, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's not a suggestion on how to make your marriage better. It's an order. And when it says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, it's an order. It's not a marriage improvement strategy. It is an order from the Son of God who's going to execute judgment. When he says, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, it's an order. When he says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you, it's an order. Everyone serving in the name of Christ. It's an order. And, and somehow or another, we have taken this marvelous truth about the Son of God, and we've said, well, you know, he's just there to kind of help my life be better. He leads the armies of heaven. He's a commander-in-chief, and you could just keep going. But I think you get the idea. You know, and, and we wonder why our spiritual lives are so impotent at times. It's because we have suggestions rather than orders. Well, I've got to see if it feels right for me and figure it out kind of idea. Let me pray about it, and I'm kind of going on and on. But you get the idea. The book of Revelation would have none of it. The whole message, you get these churches that are getting the, the stew beat out of them, you know, in the first century. I mean, the, the, the emperor Domitian, is, he, he's having people pray to him as the Lord God, and he's demanding that people worship him on a regular basis. Christians are losing their lives, and these foreknowledge is presented to say, there are no options. There are no compromises. These are orders. You will worship the Lord God only. They're not suggestions. And we do God an injustice and we rob ourselves of the spiritual vitality and power and purpose that God seeks to give us when we treat the Scriptures and God's message to us as just another self-help 84-step process. We could go on and on. Secondly, the dominant feature of the early part of the book of Revelation 
is that Jesus is the Lord of the church. In chapter 1, he's pictured walking among the lampstands. And later we're told that the lampstands are symbolize the churches. As he writes to the churches, he said, and he speaks to them about the things that are wrong in their spiritual pursuit of, of him, he says, if you don't get this right, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your lampstand. Clearly the evidence and, and the pr- picture that's being presented to us is that Jesus is in charge of the church. Jesus is Lord of the church. And you see many, reverent, many revelations in the book of Revelation that speak to that issue. It's obvious that he has authority over the church. You know, and I, I don't know if there's probably a more timely word for churches in the Western world when you look at all of Christian history than this word right now. Whether the church is here to serve Christ, not the church, not Christ to serve the church. Now let that, let that sink in so, because it, it's so easy to get it turned around. You know, my, my life is full of problems. I got a lot of challenges. There's opportunities. I can't make up my mind about this stuff and I, et cetera. And, and, and so I go to church so the church can, so God can help me. And, and there's, there's certainly a component to that. Listen, there certainly is a component to that. The Scripture tells us that Jesus desires to present the church, everybody who's a part of it, spotless, without blemish, before the Father. And He gave His life up for the church. There's absolutely that aspect of it. But that is not the primary purpose of the church. The church is here to serve Christ. We are here to serve Christ. And we have just robbed the body of Christ. We've robbed the church. We've robbed ourselves of so much of what God's trying to pour into us because we've got it where somehow or another the church is God's means of serving us instead of the church being God's means of serving Christ and His mission in the world. I remember hearing a and I can't remember, it's been a while ago. I, I, I don't remember if I, I read this in an account or whether I, a pastor shared this at a, at a conference I was at. But a pastor was talking about an experience he had had where he had, you know, he's pastor of a fairly large church and there'd be people who would attend that, that he wouldn't know. I mean, it's, it's, I have that experience, not so much from, from Hope Chapel, but other times where I've been in a store somewhere and somebody will come up and start talking to me. And it's like, how do I know you? And it's because I did an interim in Northboro or somewhere or other, you know, and I, and they, and they remain, and I, I don't remember those people. So this guy's in the store and, I, you know, and he's, he's shopping and this woman comes up to him. She almost had this look, there's like a glee on her face. And she said, you know, she said, um, I left your church. I left your church. I left your church because it wasn't meeting my needs. And he said, well, See, that's a good thing because it's not my church. It's Jesus' church. We're not trying to meet your needs. We're trying to meet Jesus' needs. And she was like kind of taken back, you know. He was feeling a little feisty that day, you know, kind of idea. You know, we we do that all the time. You know, and it's, we don't do ourselves any service by looking at it and saying, how can the church serve me? It is, the body of Christ sent into the world as Christ was sent. And the church is here to serve the Father and the Son. 
and and it's, it is why it is just you, you just rob yourself. All of us rob ourselves of one of the primary pleasures of being a child of God. If we're not actively serving in the body and through the body and with the body. Because Jesus Christ is Lord of the church. And he will never surrender the fact that the church is there to serve him. To be a lighthouse in the world. has a lot to say about the mall shopping that we do, the church mall shopping that we do so much in our culture. You know, well, this, ch- this church, they got more comfortable seats and these guys have a better children's wing and these guys have the more active youth program with the better pool tables. And, you know, we get, and, we do, you know, and I'm being facetious, but boy, we, we do that a lot, don't we? The music's better at this place. The preacher's not as long at this place. You know, we we got all kinds of things that we do, you know? And it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be about God's led me to unite with this family and I have linked arms with the people in this part of the army of God and I'm going to go to battle with them to see the glory of God expanded in our kingdom. And I tell you what, if we don't get our thinking about Christ right, We'll never get our lives right in following him. One last major image. And it comes out so powerfully in chapter 5. And if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to flick back to chapter 5 and of, Rome, of, of the book of Revelation. And John has completed his letter to the, to the seven churches. He's, he's laid out the throne room of God and now he's ready to start unveiling God's revelation about the future. And I want to begin with verse 1, but I'm really particularly interested in verse 5 and following. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll, or even to look into it. And I cried, and cried, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll, or even look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop crying, look. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious, so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing before the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent to look into all the earth. And he came and he, and he took the scroll of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Then a little later in verse 12 it says, The Lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
the book of Revelation. And in th- just about 30 different occasions presents Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, as the worthy Lamb of God. Now, you know, if you want to be technical, there are in some apocalyptic, between the New Testament, between the Testament period, some Hebrew la- things that refer to the, the heroes as being the lambs, like the Maccabees are referred to as the lamb. But clearly the imagery here is the lamb as the sacrificial lamb, that which was consistently offered up in the temple of God for the forgiveness of sins and was particularly offered on Passover and those kinds of occasions. Jesus Christ is the worthy lamb of God. That means he is the means, the absolute means of our salvation. There is no other options. There aren't other good ideas. There aren't other. Listen, I, I believe that you should treat all other religions, all other faiths with respect. But that is not to say that they are a means of it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because he's the only worthy lamb in all of human history. He's the only one who was fully God and fully man, who without sin offered himself out. And literally became, embodied all of sin and the guilt of sin within him and was sacrificed so that you and I could be forgiven. There are no other means of salvation. And the book of Revelation is absolutely clear as it over and over again refers to Jesus as the Lamb. He is the means of our redemption. And if you are trusting on your eternity on anything but your faith in Jesus Christ as the worthy Lamb, your faith is misplaced. It's not based on your works. It's not based on your efforts. It's not based on how strong your character is and anything else. It's based on your faith in the worthy Lamb, Jesus Christ. And if your faith isn't resting there today, the book of Revelation screams out to you, He's going to win. Be on the winning team. Be on the side of righteousness and eternal life through dependence on the Lamb. Let's pray together. Father, for the vast majority of us gathered here today, what we've heard, we know. But just because we know it, doesn't mean that we are it. Now, I know that's not good English, Lord. But just because we have it stuck away in the confines of our theological mental libraries doesn't mean we've turned it into the way that we live as your people day by day. God, thank you for the prevailing truths from your word about who Jesus is. And God, your desire for none of us to be confused about Jesus' role in our lives. God, help us all to be a people where, if you said it, we do it. If you want it, it's our mission. Because we trust only in you. For this life in the life to come, in the worthy Lamb, 
that is Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray today. Amen. Amen.